There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream With Mind and Heart, every Disney movie ever. I'm Ryan Silverstein, and with me is my co-host, Megan Bojarski. And this episode we're covering in the words of uh, film critic and Disney scholar Leonard Maltin, quote, an opportunity to showcase visual fantasy that would never present itself again. Fantasia, alongside Snow White and Disneyland, showcases the confidence and creative drive within Walt Disney, maybe more than any other project. Uh, Fantasia is has also been called the crown glory of the Silly Symphonies, uh, taking that idea to its apex. And watching Fantasia again for this episode, uh, Megan, I was really glad that we did that first episode about the uh, all the shorts, um, most of which were Silly Symphonies, because I feel like I could really see, with those fresh in my mind, I could really see the link to Fantasia. Absolutely. And I... There's a few different references that you can definitely see, you know, Flowers and Trees is a huge influence on several of the nature scenes, and I've enjoyed seeing it in order because, um, and I'll bring this up later, but I think Cleo from Pinocchio randomly popped up in two or three of these, so you definitely see those early ties and how it definitely kind of grew out of their more artistic uh, side of things instead of the narrative side of things. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's a really interesting project. And I think it's one that it's not that it's forgotten because it is sort of, you know, popular or well known, but I feel like it's one that people talk about, but don't necessarily dive into, but there's actually a ton of things to dive into in this. Absolutely. So Megan, do you want to kick us off with uh, the sort of origins of this whole Fantasia project? Sure. So there's a lot of different kind of pieces that came together on this. But a lot of what we see is coming in 1937 and 1938. Disney had decided that they were going to work on a silly symphony called The Sorcerer's Apprentice with uh, conductor Leopold Stokowski. And it was just going to be a wonderful way to bring Mickey Mouse back into popularity. But it very quickly became more expensive than they could ever actually earn from it. I think this is a huge trend that we've been seeing that uh, Walt definitely bites off more than he can chew with money. And so they kind of decided that if we're not going to make enough money with this as a short, we should just go ahead and make it a full length feature. And so they decided to continue adding on these kind of musical ideas. Um, and one of the kind of legendary stories of this is that on September 29th, 1938, about 60 of Disney's artists were brought into what essentially was a two and a half hour piano concert. I find this hilarious that multiple times Disney was just like, 
Okay, guys, you've got to be here tonight because we're just going to randomly have a concert or a video. And as this was all going uh, on, he provided kind of a running commentary of how he wanted to do it and was moving in special positions and doing all of the things that he kind of did for Snow White. This was clearly one of those other Walt projects where he just got very into his idea. They also included a rough version of The Sorcerer's Apprentice. And they claim that uh, once he got through the whole musical rendition, they played a little bit of The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Uh, according to one person, the entire crowd just stood up and cheered, quote, until their hands were red, which is such a piece of Disney lore that I find hilarious. Um, I, I know that we have more to talk about with Stokowski and Disney because it was really kind of this joint project. But that's just such a great setup to it, that they had one of these other gatherings of the artists to see what crazy thing Walt had come up with. Yeah, there is really a sort of a sense that this is trying to not recapture the same magic of Snow White. Uh, and now I'm like, every I, I now think of this every episode. I'm like, we almost could have titled this podcast, You Can't Top Pigs with Pigs. But <laughs> uh, the... It really feels like this is trying to push in a different direction. And I think that is also maybe one of the reasons why there are so many, like, legends and myths and, like, just weird, like, not weird, but, like, there are there's so many stories around this movie in particular, I feel like, that, you know, sort of adds to its, uh, it, its sort of mythical status within the Disney canon. Absolutely. Um, something that I think you'll talk more about Stokowski in a second, but one of the things that I was reading said that essentially the way they met, which as we've said, there are many different versions of, but uh, Stokowski was just getting lunch at a, at a nice restaurant. He was just having a good time and a random man in the corner started waving his arms and shouting his name and he looked up and, and who was it but Walt Disney? He joined him and they spent over three hours just talking and getting crazy ideas together just for the Sorcerer's Apprentice. This was before they had even conceived of making it a bigger thing. And I just find it hilarious that we really do have that early mythology of there was always just this explosion of creativity where geniuses were at work. <laughs> and that's definitely a theme that they uh, definitely kept up with Walt in his early years. Yeah, and, and among the different sources I consulted for my notes on this episode, I actually read three different versions of that story. One was at lunch at a restaurant. One was that they met at a party. And there was a third one where I, I, somebody else introduced them. And and so, like, I don't know what the what the real story of the meeting between Walt and Stokowski was. But uh, I, I did a little bit more research on Leopold uh, Stokowski himself. Because I think it adds some context about how this sort of uh, how this project came to be and, and why it ended up the way that it was. Uh, so at the time, he was the conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra, uh, which is my hometown orchestra. So that, that may also explain a little bit of the fondness for this, because I remember as a kid seeing like and the Philadelphia Orchestra on the screen. And it was like it made it feel important or special or that there's a little bit of hometown pride <laughs> in this movie for me. Like Walt, uh, Sikowski did have a flair for the theatrical. There were times where he would be conducting 
uh, the Philadelphia Orchestra or some of the other groups that he had worked with over his career. And he would like dramatically throw aside the sheet music to show that he <laughs> knew the music backwards and forwards and didn't need it. Uh, he experimented with different lighting during the performances. Sometimes he would put spotlights where his hands would be uh, and everything else was sort of dim so that people could see his dramatic conducting style. Uh, and he was also one of the first conductors to forego using a baton and just use his bare hands to get like as much, I guess, dynamism in there as possible. So he definitely was a dramatic theatrical conductor. Uh, and also like Walt, he was an innovator. Uh, so he would rearrange the different sections of the orchestra and play with the sound and, you know, think about the ways that the sound would fill the Academy of Music, uh, also here in Philadelphia. Uh, and he was actually the one who came up with the seating arrangement that is widely used today by most orchestras, um, where the different sections are, some are, you know, the strings are kind of in the center, split between left and right, and the way that the different uh, sections are arranged around the conductor uh, is basically the way that he did it, the way, like what he landed on became the standard, which is, which is kind of crazy when you think about the history of classical music, and that's relatively recent. And then he was also known for uh, making revisions to the work works being performed, just tweaks. You know, he uh, there was a there's the Romeo and Juliet piece. He ended on sort of a quiet, tragic note instead of a bombastic note. So he would make like edits to well known pieces of music, which was actually common practice up until the second half of the twentieth century. So he's this innovator, but he's sort of also the last of his breed. Uh, in terms of that kind of conductor, uh, which will also come back later because that plays into some of the reception of Fantasia within the music world, especially. Mm -hmm. uh, and then his personal view of this project was he really wanted to use this as a way to enhance music with visuals in order to intrigue the segment of the public that was closed-minded to classical music. So he never thought that this was, Fantasia was aimed at people who had season tickets to the Philadelphia Orchestra. Like, this isn't for them. This is for the, you know, the broader movie-going public who might be more into a movie that was about music than actually, you know, sitting and watching music. Um, you know, and as, as we'll talk about, Walt kind of fits that bill <laughs> uh, himself. That he's, Walt is sort of the first audience member of, uh, of Fantasia, uh, in terms of its its goal in bringing sort of classical music to the people. Yeah, I I will admit I love music. I am a staunch musical lover, so I I really get into you know the the sound of the music and how all of that works. Um, but I will admit I am not a huge classical music fan. So I in many ways kind of was this audience, but I do love kind of how much they went into, okay, we're not, <laughs> we are going to build our audience because the audience that is likely to want this kind of thing, we are utterly rejecting. Um, <laughs> I actually, I had to grab one of my books. This is a book that I mentioned a few podcasts ago, um, Wild Minds, the Artists and Rivalries that Inspired the Golden Age of Animation. Uh, just because one of the things that you were saying there just hit on something I had read. Um, apparently, Walt's staff was really worried that they were going to alienate their primary audience, which to them was people who liked classical music, because why would anybody else come to see it? And Disney said, and I quote, 
I wouldn't worry a damn bit about those stiff shirts that are supposed to be the ones that this music is created for anyway. They're not going to care one way or the other. And I, I just, I find it kind of funny that on the one hand he was like, well, yeah, I mean, they're going to come anyway because, you know, they're going to come. But also, they're, I don't care about them. I'm not them. They, who cares? Because um, it's just such a an odd perspective to, you know, you've got to think about the audience here. And as much as there weren't as many options back then as there definitely are now, you know, if you want to go to a movie, you have choice. But he was really like, ah, oh, yes, the people who are going to like classical music, screw them. I don't care. And he was really kind of lucky in getting Stokowski, who kind of had the same mindset, according to some of the research. And again, so much of this is, is convoluted lore. But uh, based on their early meetings about this, according to the lore, Stokowski agreed to waive his fee because he was so enthusiastic about the idea. Now, I don't know if that meant he was not getting paid at all. I don't think that makes any sense. But I think essentially he was like, pay me as you would pay a normal conductor, not the great Stokowski. Because he was fairly, fairly well known at that point. And I just find it kind of funny that they had that going. Um, one other thing that we're going to talk about a little bit more later, but a lot of this, as we said, goes back to the original concept for The Sorcerer's Apprentice which, as we know, featured Mickey Mouse. That wasn't a foregone conclusion. Um, Disney was sold on it from the beginning. So according to Walt, quote, Donald is the big thing now, but it won't last. Mickey is forever. He'll have his moment in the shade, but he will always come out in the bright lights again. Which I, I find really interesting because as we have seen that has pretty much worked out for him. Mickey is still kind of that icon. But according to various sources, they actually considered changing that very late in the game that mm, maybe we don't do Mickey Mouse, maybe we do Dopey from Snow White, which would have been a very different story, but would kind of fit the, the befuddled uh, nature of the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Other people said, why don't we create a fully new figure? Uh, just to kind of capture this new energy, but he was he was sold on Mickey Mouse, and we'll talk about it more with the release later, but essentially the way he began releasing this also had to do with Mickey Mouse. We've got to connect it to where Mickey Mouse was born. So it's interesting for a story that doesn't have Mickey Mouse in 75% of it, he definitely kind of was the driving factor of the whole conception. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point, especially it, it is funny that Donald actually is in Fantasia 2000, which we will talk about several years from now <laughs> and many, many podcast episodes from now. Uh, so, so put a pin in that to come back to come back later. But uh, I like the idea that, and again, it's something I think that we'll, we'll touch on here and there as it comes up in this podcast project, but Disney does really do Disney, the company uh, really takes Mickey seriously in terms of like, we have to do enough with Mickey to like endear him to the next generation at least, but we also have to preserve him as an icon. And it, there is this kind of push pull with Mickey that I think is actually only made been made easier in the like streaming sort of 
post monoculture mm-hmm. era where there can be different versions of Mickey kind of all coexisting at once. Um, so that's definitely something that we'll 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 be keeping an eye on it. But this is a, a very important piece of the the overall Mickey Mouse picture, I think. Um, another important figure I wanted to briefly touch on before we get into the individual segments themselves is uh, Deems Taylor. So he's the narrator who appears in between all the segments uh, and at the beginning and and the end of the film. Um, He was brought in as narrator because of his experience bringing classical music through radio and other programming uh, with the New York Philharmonic. Um, And so he's the one kind of introducing all the pieces, sort of setting the stage. He will often describe in detail everything that's going to happen in each segment, which I thought was an interesting approach. Uh, Like, you know, for the... um, the pastoral segment, he talks about, oh, there's going to be a storm and then this thing. So like, you're not really surprised when you're watching it. He really is sort of setting your expectations in a way. Uh, but until I was researching for this, it's probably the only time I've heard his actual voice. Because what I didn't realize is that uh, in for the I think when they restored it for the 50th anniversary, uh, they had to re-record all of his lines using voice actor Corey Burton, who has done numerous 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 voice acting projects with disney and and elsewhere but he's he's a big sort of almost in-house disney voice actor uh because the original had deteriorated too much to be restored so they re-recorded all of his lines and Corey burton doesn't seem like he's doing like an imitation of deems taylor from (laughs) the side-by-side clip that i found on youtube uh, but it, it is interesting because I didn't actually realize that wasn't his normal, his, his Deems Taylor's original voice until I was looking into it. Um, and then on a technical level, one of the things that kind of applies uh, on a technical level, one of the things that applies across the board here is this idea of uh, fantasound. So Walt really had the idea of like, look, we've worked with Technicolor to bring color to movies like never before. We've done a full length cartoon like nobody had ever done before. Now I want to do like reinvent movie sound. And so this is like the one of the first attempts from my research of sort of doing like a high fidelity multi-track, not only recording, but then exhibition of a movie with this kind of sound. So they actually recorded uh, the orchestra at the Academy of Music in Philadelphia, which I've been to and has still teeny, teeny, tiny seats that are not made for present day Americans. Um, (laughs) And they recorded with nine 35 millimeter film cameras to just record the sound. So they weren't really recording the picture. They were just getting the soundtrack onto 35 millimeter film and used 33 different microphones. Uh, And they would mostly do the recordings very late at night uh, so that they weren't interrupting the schedule of all the other events that were happening at the Academy of Music at the time to get this really rich um, soundtrack that is as close. Like Walt was basically trying to do surround sound before Mm -hmm. that was even a thing that existed. And we'll talk more about the release, but the sound was a big part of why he wanted to do this roadshow style release where it would only be in a few theaters around the country at a time. So they could actually like these custom sound systems that were built, they could move them from theater to theater and they, they took like a week to install. 
uh, at every site and they had to be, you know, they would be calibrated for the exact room that they were in and everything. And that was part of what made this whole project so expensive on top of all the animation stuff that we're going to talk about. Uh, this did cost two and a half million dollars at the time, which is uh, roughly one and a half times Snow White, uh, which is that's a big that's a big increase in budget, you know, and you're not paying. It's not like, oh, we well, hired, you know, the biggest actors of the day to be in this, you know, are the most famous face in this movie is foregoing his salary as a big show of why this is such an important project. So uh, it really was, you know, it's it's cliche to say, like, you can see it on the screen, but you kind of can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I OK, this is going to sound like a total tangent, but I was re-watching Scream 2. Um, I'm going to be on round two, the film sequel podcast. It'll be out before this is out, so you'll be able to check that out. But I was re-watching Scream 2 for that podcast, and they have a big film release, and it has a big sign that says, now showing in Stabavision. And I'm like, is that a reference to Fantasound? Because it just seemed like an odd little congruence there. And it could be completely unrelated. But it was just the first thing I thought of when I was looking into the Fanta sound. <laughs> One of the other really quick things before we go into the production and the individual segments that I found really interesting was where this name came from. So originally they were just doing the one segment. But according to some of the sources, again, there's so much dispute... Uh, Stokowski had personally argued that it should be a full feature, and at that point, Disney called it the Concert Feature. A very, uh, obvious name. Uh, doesn't really do much for it. <laughs> uh, so he asked his, um, his head animators and his story workers, please come up with a really engaging name. And according to legend, the other workers did not like Stokowski. They did not like that he was taking them in a completely different direction. They kind of saw Disney as in every man's working place, and Stokowski was not the everyman at all. So they decided that what it should be named was Hybrovsky by Stokowski, which I think would be hilarious. Um, unfortunately, that is not the name they went with. They did have over 1,800 suggestions made before they finally decided to call it Fantasia, which I think was the right choice. It's, it's short, but it's, the word itself kind of tells you what it's going to be. And I just, I kind of love that story that Hybrovsky by Stajkovsky was just the, the casual name behind the scenes. Because there's always, you know, the name that the workers have for it versus the name that it is when we all come out with it. And it just is kind of interesting to think about how uh, against their will some of the workers were for this project. Walt decided he was going to bring high culture to the masses and they uh, were not all on board with that. And you definitely can see little moments of that along the way. Yeah, and I definitely think that speaks to the animators overall like you know they were they, these guys were all gag men originally mm -hmm. and now they're being asked to sort of really break the mold and and think outside the box and you know it, here's all these guys who like they're you know it, for snow white they were getting five bucks if their joke made it into the movie and now they're like okay well it's like all right guys blank slate blue sky 
what do you want to do? <laughs> like, here's a piece of music. What do you think it should look like? And it it, it really does. I, I, you sort of get the sense that it, it challenged them and their notions of what animation could be, just like it would challenge the general public. And I think uh, I, I do love that Hybrowski by Stokowski name. That is, that is great. But I do also agree with you that Fantasia ultimately was probably the right choice. And, you know, uh, at least looking back on it and growing up with that name being around, it it, it seems to suit it uh, pretty well. One of the things I really like about this is when it starts, it feels like a concert movie because you're watching the orchestra assemble, you're seeing the instruments, it's done in this very dramatic, like the stage is kind of blue, there's a lot of like big shadows and everything, you know, and then you get you get the introduction. Uh, and then the first segment is uh, based around uh, Takata and Fugue in D minor by Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, it was directed by Samuel Armstrong. He had been a background artist on The Old Mill and Snow White. And then after this, he would be a sequence director on Bambi and Dumbo. So this is uh, Samuel Armstrong is definitely someone who's you, you can see the progression uh, with a lot of these animators careers where they go from background artist but you know this guy might have been better at sort of leading other animators than he was at actual drawing some of the main figures and so he goes right from a background animator to a sequence director rather than being a like character animator or a lead animator on something um as part of the introduction deems taylor says that there are three kinds of music music that tells a story music that paints a picture or abstract music and he says takata and fugue uh, in D minor is the third kind. This is really just like a lot of colors dancing across the screen and abstract shapes and just it feels the most experimental I think of all of these segments and I think it's a real it's a it's a big swing to open with this because it feels very very modern in the in the same way that like you know I would describe Salvador Dali or um uh, Magritte as modern artists, like it, it feels like it is very much of its time in the 19, late 1930s, 1940. But it's a it's a really big swing because all of these others have characters to identify with at the very least. Like there's action that's happening. There's some kind of story being told, even if it's very basic. And this really is just pure expression. Um, and I found a quote by Walt that I feel like sums up the like approach to this whole project, which maybe is why, you know, it's first, besides the fact that because all the images are abstract, you are kind of, I feel like focusing on the music a little more and really kind of thinking about what this project actually is. Uh, but Walt's quote was, our object is to reach the very people who had walked out on Takata and Fugue because they didn't understand it. I'm one of those people, but when I understood it, I liked it. Uh, and I, one of the charming things about this movie is and again, this could be totally apocryphal, but supposedly this really changed Walt's mind about classical music. He really started to appreciate it. And one of the books that I was looking at for this went so far as to say that the um, the Disney Concert Hall out in Los Angeles, the reason that um, the reason that Lillian donated all that money to the city to build this concert hall that Gary ended up ended up designing was because of Fantasia that Walt fell in love with classical music making this picture and that was the that was a way that she wanted to sort of give back uh with this like philanthropic donation of these millions and millions of dollars to build this state-of-the-art concert hall starts with this movie 
Yeah, I think this movie really does, you know, this first entry goes with those abstract shapes, but they definitely kind of have the feeling, uh, how do I put this? I really loved looking at the way that the abstraction worked with the music, specifically when they had like, um, you could see the bows of the violins and that was the entire animation, but it was going up and down with the pitch of the music. It was such a great visual representation of how the music felt, uh, and yet definitely a weird way to present it. It's not the kind of thing that you would normally see. I will say I have one grievance with the way that this section was introduced. Because they said there's music that tells a story, music that paints a picture, or abstract music. And I was like, okay, so this is going to be really abstract. And then they started it, and I went, wait, that's just the music that they play to, like, indicate that somebody's evil or in a horror movie. <laughs> and I was watching it with my mom, and I was like, yeah, it's like Hammer House films or the early uh, monster pics, uh, pictures. And it, all I could think was, this is horror music. I know this is horror music. And I looked it up because I wanted to see, I assumed that that was, I came into it with uh, later knowledge and it messed with it. But actually, that idea existed before the film came out. So they actively decided not to follow the trend, which is kind of interesting to me there. So they had used this... Uh, both as things just to have in the silent film era and in sound film, uh, becoming this cliche for horror. It was first used in uh, 1931's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and then in 1934, The Black Cat. And I just found that such an odd little way to... I don't know, like it existed. This was a recognized thing that essentially it was horror music and instead they thought it would be fun to really have these colors and the the sounds be the characters and it was definitely an interesting deviation because like I said when I heard the music I'm expecting this is a villain story essentially and it was just kind of interesting to me uh, did you have that at all? Did you kind of make that connection? Or since you watched Fantasia first, did you have their mindset first? Yeah, I, I, I don't know that I knew this music when I saw this when I was a very when, when I was a kid. But even going back to it uh, at other points in my life, in my mind, I always actually think of the, you know, as associated with the last segment of this with Chernabog because he is sort of the villain of of the piece and Night on Bald Mountain is music I recognize but it doesn't have that very hummable intro <laughs> that I just did so I do always like it always does surprise me but I think it is actually really indicative of the way the direction they're taking this project because I think outside of the Sorcerer's Apprentice they really are detaching the sort of preconceived intent I guess preconceived notion or uh, intent of the composer away from what they're doing with the visuals. It really does feel like it's sort of this free association 
exercise to determine how to depict each of these pieces of music in a visual sense. Absolutely. And that was something, you know, it was on my mind as I was watching this first section, and then it kind of continued into the next one. So the second section was The Nutcracker Suite by Tchaikovsky, and this section was directed by Samuel Armstrong. It was discovered originally by uh, Bianca Majoli, and they essentially went with a completely different direction than what I'm used to with it. Um, they did a lot of nature, a lot of kind of the changing of the seasons, um, and I was very much expecting like ballerinas and ice skaters. Like that is, that is the connection I have with that music. So it was even more just continuing that trend of let's not force this music to have this one specific meaning. Let's kind of grow it beyond that. Yeah, and this one is a real, a really interesting example, and and maybe even my favorite example of this because, you know, in the intro, Deems Taylor is like, "You won't see any Nutcrackers in in this next segment," despite the name of the piece. And what's funny about that is nobody in the audience in the United States would have had that preconceived notion other than the title because. Uh, Bianca uh, Majol, Majoli, I'm also going to butcher her name because I don't know how to pronounce it, unfortunately. Uh, but she was one of the people that Walt had sort of assigned to go out and like go find a bunch of classical music that you think would be worth animating to. And so she like went to a record shop. She told them that she was working on a project for, for Walt Disney and they handed her like a giant stack of records and she spent, you know, all day listening over and over and brought a bunch back with her. And the Nutcracker Suite was one that just immediately jumped out to her as being very, you know, energetic and illustrative. But the Nutcracker had yet to be produced in the United States. It was kind of a minor Tchaikovsky uh, in Russia. And so, it, you know, it had been done in Russia a few times, but it was basically unknown in the U.S. before Fantasia. And so the fact that we have the Nutcracker being performed every year in most major cities in this country is directly the result of this one woman working for Walt Disney, listening to this record that only had, you know, it was like a 20 minute sort of um, compilation of the full ballet into this form of the Nutcracker suite. Uh, and we have her to thank for it being popular, us even knowing the story. And, you know, Disney suddenly also a few years ago, deciding that there were four realms within the Nutcracker. Um, so it's really, this particular one, just the music being brought to the public has a very long legacy in and of itself. And I, this is a, one that I remember because there is a Christmas Disney sing-along VHS tape that I had when I was a kid. <laughs> and the dancing snowflakes skittering across the ice was done to joy to the world. So they took like a few Disney songs and then a bunch of like Christmas standards and set them to different uh, Disney animation that would sort of suit the theme. And so they kind of had repurposed parts of this from Fantasia for Joy to the World. Uh, and so I, that's still my strongest association with some of the imagery in here, but uh, like I said, especially the snowflakes, but this has so much going on in it. Um, some of the individual cells in this segment uh, and a cell, again, is like, you know, 24 frames a second, roughly 24 cells a second, not always, but roughly. 
But some of those individual cells took five hours to paint, which is a, I mean, I don't want to say a waste, but it's like, that is a tremendous use of resources for what the eye is only going to see for a fraction of a second. Because remember, you're, the only way to see this is in a theater. So you can't freeze frame, go frame by frame to look at every individual cell. You're just seeing the whole finished product. And so to spend five hours on one, one image that is only going to be there for a small fraction of a second. It's just, I mean, to me, that really shows a lot about the, the dedication and the artistry that went into this one. Um, and they also invented some new techniques for this segment. Uh, so with the snowflakes, they were having a lot of trouble drawing them by hand. Uh, so Leonard Pickley from the special effects department that we talked about in our first episode when they decided that they were going to do lightning and thunder and things in, in a standard way, and they created this department. Um, they he, he came up with the idea of using stop-motion animation. So they used diagrams of real snowflakes, which were then traced by the wonderful and very talented women of the ink and paint department. Um, and they used a, a material that was a little bit heavier, painted them in translucent white, cut them out, and then placed them on spools attached to small rails. So they would basically do stop-motion animation for the snowflakes. Uh, and so they hid everything under black velvet, photographed the snowflakes one frame at a time, and then drew the hand-drawn animation on another layer that would go on top of it in the multiplane camera. So it, the effect is astounding. It looks really cool. Uh, and I actually had no idea that that much sort of effort and invention went into that particular image, which, you know, was maybe a minute and a half of this whole thing. Yeah, that section, I mean, it was stunning. I, and I'll talk about this more later. Some of the sections of this movie are just breathtakingly beautiful. And other segments, I, I, I feel like they hadn't uh, quite gotten the special effects team to figure out how to do them yet. Um, but the, the snowflakes were absolutely amazing. Obviously, this section had a lot to do with flowers, a lot to do with the fairies, um, which, of course, draws me back to uh, flowers and trees all the time. I'm just going to connect to that every single time I see flowers in any Disney movie now. Um, <laughs> but you just see this kind of, like, beauty of nature, which, I don't know, it's it's just... I Okay, for reference, uh, so Ryan already mentioned that uh, he has seen this several times before. I had not. So I had not seen this until I was just watching it for this. And, I mean, I don't know how I didn't see it. I mean, some of the stuff in here is just ab absolutely stunning. And like you said, it's... Uh, okay, so I'm... I have a history degree and it's going to come out, but so my favorite thing is when particular stories or pieces of arts or, or pieces of culture get brought in in the weirdest ways. Uh, so for instance, we always really think of like the Greeks and the Romans as being extremely connected to Western culture. Um, but the Christian church or the Catholic church uh, originally did not like them and completely eliminated them. And the only reason we have classical texts is because uh, the Arabic people, various Arabic people preserved them and helped to bring them back in. Um, and they had a presence in 
Spain, which then brought it back into Europe. And I find it hilarious that the same thing is happening here with Disney, that, like you said, I mean, this has got to be one of, I don't know, maybe five or six most famous classical music in America. And the idea that it wasn't even in America at the time, that it all goes back to uh, Bianca Majoli, who, again, uh, was the one who actually was able to read Pinocchio in the original Italian. So she's really bringing this culture in that didn't exist there for it to then be so popular here because of a movie that, as we'll talk about later, was not extremely popular in its own time is just extremely impressive to me how well that they were able to translate some of these um, compositions. Yeah, and I think this segment has the most variation within it. Like this is almost like a segment of segments because uh, you have sort of like the fairies and the snow and you have the dancing mushrooms with the... I um, love that. <laughs> and I, I, I especially love that mushroom sequence because one of the things that I think I especially paid attention to on this watch is the way that they do bring in these cartoon gags into this more, let's say, more serious work than Snow White or even Pinocchio they do bring in some of these these gags, like the, the smallest mushroom is like never quite fitting in with the rest as they're doing their sort of dance and everything. And it's very cute and charming and sweet. Uh, you know, and you have the, the flowers, which do look a lot like the flowers from Flowers and Trees. I, I will absolutely agree with you there. And it's just, it's so varied. And I think it's so interesting that nature also is a big, if, if Fantasia has a theme beyond just let's dream up some cool stuff with music, sort of the power of nature is, I guess, kind of the other the other major theme of this whole film. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, it really is a segment of segments, which is to do with the music. I mean, there are... I, I always watch things with the um, subtitles on, which is funny to do in a movie that has very little actual spoken words. But it actually... Uh, the closed captioning for this on Disney+, Plus actually suggests that there are about five or six different songs within this segment. And you do see kind of moving through different places. Uh, they went underwater and as far as I can tell, were being led by Cleo from Pinocchio. Uh, and then there were other fish, but I swear that was Cleo from Pinocchio, which I, I find it kind of crazy how many connections they made from the very beginning. Um, but there was definitely this sense that the beauty of nature was a core part of humanity and kind of that was the way to connect, you know, the everyday person with this very kind of highbrow material, which I find hilarious because, and skipping ahead and we'll, uh, I won't talk too much about it, but I find it hilarious that the Pastoral Symphony, which is supposed to be about nature, they were like, no, nah, we're going to make it about Greek mythology. Everything else in this entire film is about nature. But the one segment that was meant to be, they completely got rid of it. Yeah, no, I, I do think that's interesting. And I was reminded of, of Cleo with those fish, but more of like a, she's a mature woman in the city, Cleo. Now. <laughs> like she's, 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 she's grown up. Um, you know, they're, her eye, her eyelashes are a lot longer. She's she's a bit more <laughs> flamboyant than uh, Cleo was in, in Pinocchio. 
but you can but you can definitely see with you know thinking of the old mill thinking of you know the uh the more abstract parts of snow white like the chase through the forest the underwater sequences in pinocchio like you can really see the evolution of how disney gets from from there to here like it, you, you can see sort of the artist working through this progression and reattempting some of the same things or bringing techniques that they learned doing an earlier project into a new project. Um, and I think, you know, The Sorcerer's Apprentice is a prime example of it. So that piece of music is by uh, Paul Ducasse, I believe is how you pronounce his name. But again, I could be very wrong on that. Uh, and the segment was directed by James Alger, who has a very long career. Um, he has an infamous part of his career, which we may talk about, which we will definitely talk about in the future. But um, it's interesting that he moves into directing nature docu documentaries for Disney uh, once we get into like the mid 50s. So his name will come back again as well. And um, the piece of music itself is based on uh, the 1797 poem written by um, by Gotha and was set to the 18, 1897 orchestral piece uh, by Ducasse that was inspired by that original poem. And this is easily the most, the most famous, most iconic part of this whole <laughs> entire project, uh, especially as we'll talk about in the legacy section, you know, Sorcerer Mickey, like, is one of the key personas of Mickey Mouse across his entire almost 100-year career at this point. Uh, and to me, one of the things I really like about this is... Like, Mickey gets to be a little mischievous in this because he's, you know, while he's on his own, he's able to sort of experiment and, you know, do magic on his own. And uh, Mickey feels especially Chaplin-esque to me in this particular short compared to some of the others where he's got the oversized robe, you know, the pointed wizard's hat that's very famous is, is bent. It won't stand up straight for him. Uh, so he's, he's got a little bit of that sort of Chaplin hapless, disheveled, I'm in over my head kind of character that we associate, or at least I associate with the Tramp. Yeah, I think that there's definitely, you know, this, as we have said a few times, Fantasia is such a deviation, but Mickey here is absolutely following the line of character, character, character. You can just feel his personality in every single stage of it. Uh, in every way that he moves. Um, I will say, I... Okay, I really enjoyed this. But Mickey Mouse was the least, of, least effective part for me. <laughs> and I, I feel like that is absolute blasphemy. Um, but I guess for me it is... I, I He is relatable in wanting to do magic and not have to like do his own chores i i absolutely if i was like if i just grab that hat i can do magic spells i would do it but i'm not sure i needed to see a very violent mickey mouse murder scene and i feel like that's what we got um and and that was maybe just my perception of it but he wakes up he realizes there's a problem and his immediate thought is let me get an axe and i'm gonna kill this broom and it was a, it was a little jarring for me. I don't think I like Mickey the broom murderer. I, I understand it's it's a broom, but he he gave it life. So you know, I I 
it was just surprisingly violent for me. Yeah, I did think it was interesting that the 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 key broom murder happens off screen. Like Mickey goes behind that wall and does does the most violent chopping, and then we see the aftermath of it. And then of course, you know, because of the way the spell apparently works, those brooms act like starfish and just each piece spawns a whole new whole broom. So it, it does it does work out. But I think you're right about character because you can definitely see especially just from like the band concert and this like that they're both mickey you can really see that like there is this real there is an actual center to mickey's character that they are sort of keeping um keeping top of mind as they're putting him in different projects that i think sometimes i feel like there's there's criticism that Mickey doesn't have a personality because he became this this icon. And I think, you know, even in just the two things we've covered on the show, I think that there it does show that there is this sort of mix between wholesome Mickey and mischievous Mickey that is sort of the push-pull of the character that I think is actually really interesting and really fun. Um, I was thinking of the Marvel Doctor Strange movie with, you know, the... The, the wizard comes back in and Mickey's very sheepish. And I was like almost expecting him to say, oh, they put the warning after the spell, <laughs> uh, which is one of my favorite bits in, in any Marvel movie. Uh, but the way that they use that in Doctor Strange very much reminded me of something Mickey would say here of like, oh, I, did, I didn't know that this was going to happen because the warning comes after the spell in, in the spell book. That is such a great connection. And I think... For me, uh, I, I'm going to rewrite classic Disney here. Um, I would love to just see a, a two-second clip of Mickey wakes up. He, you know, tries to physically, like, stop the broom. And then he just runs over to a book and flips through every page and can't find anything and then goes to murder the broom. I think for, for me, we just needed that, like, one sign that broom murder wasn't his like first instinct and that would have really gotten that energy that is very Doctor Strange as you point out of like oh I I just I, whoops sorry I made a mistake I didn't mm, yeah they need to be clearer with the labels on these things because <laughs> uh, I, I absolutely love the concept of you know somebody who doesn't quite know what they're doing with magic making mistakes and being so confused about how to handle it. And I think that that really works in this when the uh, Hydra-esque or Starfish-esque, as you said it, brooms uh, come back to life. And now there's like 30 of them doing it. And you see Mickey grab a pail of a pail and just start throwing it out the window compared to like 10 of them and it's alternating shots between, you know, 10 buckets of water goes in and he's like, I'm fixing the problem with just one bucket out the window. And then, of course, you've got the sorcerer doing the Moses thing. I mean, he parts the seas and that I don't know that it was intended that way. But to me, that felt very, very biblical of the sorcerer just opens the door and is like, what? How did you No, And just pushes it aside and... All of the water is... Mickey was drowning. And then the sorcerer comes out and they're like, oh, there's a couple puddles on the floor. No big deal. Uh, which maybe is is meant to suggest that it wasn't that big of a problem, but Mickey, like, 
exaggerated it in his mind. I don't know. Um, but it, it just establishes that really great contrast between, you know, the, the stern elder and the, the kind of, uh, silly apprentice who is just trying to make his life a little bit easier and causing problems all the way through. Yeah, and in this segment, one of the things that, that jumped out of me in terms of the animation is the lighting. And and that scene where the, the wizard comes back and he's sort of backlit from the hallway with this bright yellow that, and the light is sort of spilling into this dark room with the water. It's just an incredible drawing, just absolutely incredible. And it, you relating him to Moses with Parting of the Water, I didn't think about that, but this also does predate... Uh, the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments movie by like 15 or 16 years, I think. And so seeing like that is such a like an effects movie, big Hollywood blockbuster. But, you know, this might be the the best equivalent to that up until that movie comes out a bit later. That's, you know, I didn't even think about the timeline with those two. But now I'm wondering if that movie actually stole from... From Mickey Mouse uh, messing up magic, which would be hilarious to me because there were critiques that uh, said that this movie, particularly the ending, was supporting Satanism. And so the idea that uh, a major religious picture would have borrowed from it is is kind of just hilarious to me. Another thing that I really liked in this was the continued ways that they just made Walt Disney a cartoon. And I've read a few different things on this, so this is another point where the lore is uncertain. But uh, some people say Sorcerer Mickey, and some people say the sorcerer in this was named Yen Sid, which is just Disney spelled backwards. And apparently the uh, various facial expressions, uh, especially the stern expressions of the sorcerer, you know, when Mickey's like, oh, but I... I I did it. I made magic. And the sorcerer's like, no, no, don't, don't pretend this was a good thing. You, you didn't do anything good here. Uh, a lot of the sources say that that was connected to how Disney would look at the staff writers when they gave a stupid idea. And there's, there's lovely different stories about how he would shut down ideas with various different things. Some people said that, you know, if he was watching something and he was silent, that was a good sign, but if he tapped his finger on the desk, that meant he was bored. And I, I just love the idea that they continued to bring Walt into these Mickey stories. That he inspired Mickey in some ways, and then he inspired the sorcerer in some ways. And that kind of those all just snowballed together of the animators basically making jokes about their boss. Yeah, I think there's a bunch of different ways that you could read this on like a meta level because you know Walt and Mickey are so closely identified you could see Walt as Mickey and the sorcerer as uh Roy where he's like mm. what have you done you've made this giant mess and now I'm the one that has to actually deal with the practical things that need to get done here you could see this as you know two sides of Walt you know sort of the like public you know all shucks side of once that fun loving Walt and the like you know, no, we're going to do things my way. Well, I mean, either way, this this wizard definitely has, like, dad's back 
energy uh, in this. We're like, oh no, <laughs> you know, we, we were all having fun, and now now the boss is is back to you know get us back to get us back down to business. Uh, so I, I definitely think there's a bunch of different readings of that relationship that would work, and I think that also adds another layer and, and makes it really fun. I, I I also really love this segment. I love especially you know Mickey sort of conducting the heavens with the um, comets and stars and you know he, he's really he's really dreaming big which again also feels like a, a Walt thing yeah I love that and that tied in so well with that little live action segment where they blended it and Mickey was like interrupting the narration and and <laughs> talking to uh I I I'm going to mess this up. I can't remember whether he was talking to um, the narrator or to the blanking on the name. Um, oh, he's he's talking to St- uh, Stokowski because he, he comes out and he says, Mr. Stokowski, like he, he like says right. his name a couple times. Thank you for the clarification. I was <laughs> losing the word for conductor for some reason. Um, but I just, <laughs> I... So, like I said, I, I struggled with Mickey in this because of uh, the broom killing, which is is completely just a me thing. But when Mickey came out and was talking to him and, you know, the idea that him uh, kind of conducting the sky and the stars and, and all of that being connected with the conducting of this whole musical extravaganza, that was, to me, peak Mickey. Just being able to come out and kind of talk with the world in a way that none of the other animations would be able to do. Yeah, and it, it really, you know, paves the way. We're, we're going to be in our sort of next chapter of this. We'll be talking a couple times uh, in the near future about the blending of, of live action and animation, uh, which will be a recurring theme for, for a little while in there. And so it's cool to see this as the sort of the first step towards that, you know, like we said in the first episode, the Alice comedies were all sort of based around that, but it feels like Disney sort of going back to his origins and using this updated technology and all the things they had learned in the preceding, you know, almost 20 years, at least 10 years, uh, to bring Mickey into live action in a really fun way. Uh, and I really like that the intermission, I like the, the sort of jazz improv and you can kind of see the musicians are sort of having fun and it really sort of I feel like lightens the mood a little bit in a good way and it it just reminded me of like you know having been in high school band and college marching band it's like yeah that that's exactly what happens when you leave a bunch of musicians sort of unsupervised for a couple minutes we just start jamming because we can (laughs) (laughs) yeah I was in uh middle school orchestra so we were not uh nearly good enough to to do that necessarily but you definitely do have the kind of same vibe of just like if you leave a bunch of people with instruments in a room they're going to play and they're just gonna kind of do their own thing um also talking to kind of the intermission and and those live action segments i really loved what they called the soundtrack which was weird because that word obviously means very different things in other contexts but where they were like make any sound and here's kind of the way that that looks on the screen and the way that it kind of reflected uh real sound wavelengths but also just how things feel 
you know, some of the sounds were sharper where the others were more rounded. I thought that was just so impressively done to show like, here's the cool things that technology can do. Like we can actually see music and that the idea of seeing music was so much part of what this project was. I just, I really enjoyed that segment. Yeah, and it really does. Uh, I enjoy when animation gives personification or anthropomorphizes like a, an abstract concept, especially, which, you know, I think the more, especially weirdly, some of the more quote unquote educational stuff uh, that, that Disney does later, especially uh, the stuff that was made for TV, uh, has that sort of same, same feel. Like there's a, a whole Donald short about math that sort of has, uh, I feel like, a similar vibe to it. But it is really cool that they're like, oh, and of course we need to give the soundtrack the spotlight and, you know, <laughs> do a quick, like, interview them. But they're also, like, kind of given this sort of shy personality at the same time. It's, it, it's very charming. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, one of the things for me, I think, about why Walt kept kind of blending the live action and the animation is that, they can each do things that the other can't. I mean, the bringing soundtrack to life just really isn't possible in live action, but is something that animation can do so effectively. And I will say that that has faded, not entirely, but in many ways in modern day with CGI. But there were things that, you know, couldn't be realistic. You know, you couldn't realistically show what music is uh visibly unless you just wanted to like record a waveform which can be cool but eh not a not as much as like putting it in animation where it has a personality and it's like oh come on make any sound and it makes like a, a plopping goo sound uh you know that's something that you know animation can do that live action never could Whereas, you know, they could have drawn, you know, people playing music, but it was more effective to have actual, you know, musicians there. Um, so I, I really just think that that blending of the two mediums has always been kind of a, a genius move to get the best of both worlds. And maybe is why we're getting these uh, live actions that aren't <laughs> actually live action. They're just CGI which is more realistic animations. Um, you know, The Lion King isn't, isn't a nature documentary. It's CGI'd, but um, I think it's, it's kind of a similar theme. So I will say, if and when they ever unfreeze Walt, I would love to get his reaction to Avatar. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. I mean, that would be uh, definitely a way to do it. I will say, complete tangent, I was uh, researching... <laughs> I was researching who did the CGI for Cocaine Bear the other day. Uh, you know, the height of all cinema. And discovered that it all went back to the CGI company that Peter Jackson made, essentially, to make the Lord of the Rings movies that he was like, we're going to need some high technology. So I'm going to make this company. They'll do a couple things and then it'll be Lord of the Rings. And now like all high budget CGI things all just goes back to like P 
Peter Jackson wanting to make Lord of the Rings, which is such a Walt Disney thing to do, to just create an entire new art form just because he really wanted to make this cool adaptation. <laughs> um, and yeah, no, that, that, is a, that is big Walt energy. So I, I feel like as much as Walt would be like, oh, wow, that's like so beyond what I could expect, he would be like, if that could have been done in my time, I'd be doing it. Like, Oh, 100%. 100%. And if anything, he would be the first to be like, I think you could do a little bit better on that bear. <laughs> yeah, he's he was the one clamoring for Avatar 2. He's like, look, I understand that Avatar is considered like the best visual CGI in history, but I think there's room to grow. The facial expressions are just a little flat. They really got to fix that for the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to think about characterization. You can't just do it. You have to feel it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Walt would love Piacon. That's my big. That's my big take. <laughs> <laughs> um. So moving off of that tangent and and back into uh, Fantasia, the the next segment uh, was the Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky. That was directed by Bill Roberts and Paul Satterfield who were sequence directors on Bambi and Dumbo and a whole bunch of other things. Um, I, okay, so here's another area where I say something that people aren't going to like. This is my least favorite uh, segment. I, I just feel like the animation was not that great on the fire. Like, when they had the sun zoom by and it's just like a ball with occasional like juts out and in. I felt like they didn't have fire as well captured as they had, you know, ice and snowflakes from the earlier segments. I think that got better as it progressed. The volcanoes were better than, you know, the the sun. And then the fire in, in later segments was, in my opinion, much better than the, the magma in this. Um, that That's my hot take. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of this segment. Um, I, I think you were much more positive about it. If you want to kind of share some of your perspective there. Yeah, I really, uh, I mean, I, I like all of these segments. Uh, every time I watch it, I probably have a, a different favorite, but I, I make it, this is a safe space. You're allowed to have your opinions. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna argue with you or try to change your mind. I respect that not everybody agrees to me on things, which is totally fine. Um, <laughs> But what I really what I really like about this is the sort of multi or interdisciplinary feel of this segment. So you have, you know, the art of animation, which obviously is very much a as close to a traditional art as you get in, in cinema. You have music, you know, providing the sort of inspiration for it and, and the soundtrack. And then they're bringing in science and Look, every single dinosaur fact that is mentioned in the intro to this has been disproven uh, <laughs> in, in in the 80 years since, which is fine. You know, the way that the dinosaurs walk around with their tails dragging against the ground or just being kind of droopy. And, you know, when you think of the raptors in Jurassic Park or the T-Rex and, you know, the, the tails like straight out, the, they just look better because we know more about dinosaurs and how their bodies probably worked. But I really enjoy the idea that they're bringing in science to this as like a third, a third point of a triangle. And so I really like the progression of seeing um, like, like the single-celled organisms to the more complex things. And you have, you know, the uh, 
um, like amoebas eating the little dot creatures and that becomes a thing. And then all of a sudden a fish is like, you know what? I don't want to swim anymore. I'm going to be up on this land. <laughs> and like, I, I like the way that it sort of is this constantly moving forward progression over the course of it. And I, I don't disagree with you about some of the design work. It's, I would maybe more call it a different art style overall than quality, but that's, that is certainly just a difference of opinion, which again, I, I fully respect. Um, and I like the the way that they made the dinosaurs look really big, even though like the screen isn't bigger, but they there's a lot of low angles to make them look taller, more imposing, and that uh, clash between the T-Rex and the Stegosaurus is very dramatic, and you know the, I think the music really works there. Like it feels like uh, it's very in sync to the point where it almost feels like the music was written to accompany the sequence rather than the other way around, which is, was actually done. Uh, and this is, you know, if you watch Fox News at all, you're going to hear about how Disney's gone gone woke. And this was maybe the first hint of that because, uh, well, I mean, to a point, because here they're at least embracing a theory of evolution. But uh, at some point during production, Walt decided not to include people because there were going to be like people and um there's no human evolution in this. Everything else gets to evolve, but humans just sort of pop into existence <laughs> at some point in this because they didn't want to offend creationists. Uh, and so it's already Disney sort of threading that line of how can we not restrict our audience from people who may be, you know, very Christian, but how can we, because Walt is very, I think, very science oriented and very interested in, you know, science and um, you know, I, I don't know about his religious beliefs, but he's certainly a person over the course of his life. And it shows all the way through to Disneyland and Epcot. He was very progressive in the sense of humanity is progressing forward, not necessarily in all of his values <laughs> uh, as a person, but that sort of progressive idea that we are moving forward and technology is going to make our lives better. And, you know, it's a natural point of humanity sort of evolving into the future by creating this technology and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think this sort of speaks to that view in a really interesting way. And I also just really like the way they do the volcanoes and the lava is really just impressive. And again, some of the little lighting effects and things. So I, I enjoy this segment, but it, it's probably in the, you know, if I had to rank the segments, it'd probably be in the middle somewhere or, or the bottom half. Yeah, I I agree that the especially the the clash between the dinosaurs you definitely get the feeling that like it was made for that uh which is funny in one of the sources i was reading he was just essentially in a room full of the people he had had listening to various musics and he was like i want dinosaurs find me music that does dinosaurs and and they pulled this out and he's like I could see prehistoric creatures dancing around to this. That that will be wonderful. Uh, and yes, the the idea of evolution and him towing the line. Uh, so the the Scopes trial or Scopes monkey trial, as we often hear about it, was in 1925, and he was found guilty for teaching evolution. And this was not that far detached from that. And I believe that what I was reading said that essentially Roy and a few of the other, you know, money over artistry people were like, we, we don't want to we don't want to risk uh, messing things up here. 
So it, it was interesting that everything kind of evolves. I really liked when the fish just kind of like had feet kind of and was just like, <laughs> ah, fins or feet, why not? Um, I, I feel like the depiction of mitosis was oddly basically what I was taught in high school. Maybe we Same. should just watch, you know, part of Fantasia in, in schools. Um, I don't know if I ever told you this, but my intro to Disney was a history teacher who taught me that, like, ah, yes, you want to know about the Middle East? Watch Aladdin, which is just so horrible in so many ways. Um, yeah. But, but I don't know, the mitosis was, was pretty, uh, pretty realistically done. Um, so there were... There were definitely a lot of kind of redeeming parts of this. And as we kind of go into the next segment, there's a lot more controversial stuff that we can uh, uh, talk about. But we definitely see that little bit of like, okay, can we, can we propose evolution and not lose money on it so long as we don't actually show a monkey turn into a human? And that that boundary was kind of definitely present there. Yeah, and I think it says a lot about the state of the country that they were more mindful of that than the stuff they had to cut out of this movie in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's all I'll say about that for the moment. But uh, the next segment is the Pastoral Symphony by Ludwig van Beethoven. Uh, this was directed by Hamilton Lusk, who we mentioned on the Pinocchio episode, I believe. Uh, Jim Hanley and Ford Beebe who again, all of these guys have very long careers. Um, we will probably talk about them a little bit more in detail when we're not covering as much material as we are today, but I wanted to at least mention their names so that you know, our, us as doing our research and you guys listening get a taste for you know hearing some of these names that are gonna come up over and over. Uh, and Megan, as you alluded to before, this was originally one of the more controversial segments because the Pastoral Symphony is so closely associated with nature and a depiction of you know the countryside and so to take that and move it into a sort of greco-roman mythological story was a departure from the sort of established meaning or association with this piece of music um i i i mean i enjoy all of these segments uh but this is the one that i feel like maybe feels a little bit long to me sometimes when i watch it one of the things I find very interesting is the sort of depiction of uh, of nudity and sensuality in this uh, segment. And it's funny with all of the life drawing classes that Walt had been paying for his artists to go to, they were like, yeah, it's no big deal to draw uh, people without their clothes on because that's art and that's how you practice and that's how you learn how the human body works. And you can't animate the human body if you don't know what it looks like underneath whatever that body is wearing. And so... Uh, the thanks to the Hayes Code, the artists were forced to draw flower necklaces and um, coverings for the centaurettes, as as they are called in the intro, uh, in this. And you know the little uh, cheruby, cupid-like uh, creatures kind of get a pass; they're allowed to be naked um, throughout this whole thing. But it it was just very interesting to see. This, again, something we don't associate with the Disney brand, especially um, kind of front and center here. Yeah, I think, and there's there's so much, there's so much in this one. And, <laughs> and I will 
we will go over the very problematic parts of this section uh, in, in a moment. Um, but yeah, nudity was very present in actually all of this. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we see it in, in the final sequence uh, on Bald Mountain. Um, there's actually a flame that, like, if you slow it down, like, it is just female naked bodies going up, which is honestly a little bit disturbing. Earlier on, when we had the fairies um, in the Nutcracker suite, they were naked and they very clearly had boobs and they very clearly had nipples. Um, so there was, there was definitely a lot of nudity there. And even, you know, with the Hays Code, you know, changing up parts of this, you know, when the centaurettes were in the, the pond or the river bathing, they did get out fully naked. And, you know, they, they eventually put on, uh, uh, their flowers, but there was, there was definitely a lot of nudity in this segment, um, which was definitely a surprise to me. Um, the other thing that I wanted to call out before we get to the very, very serious part of this is there was... I, I love mythology, and they did this wonderful thing where they just... Greek and Roman, uh, there's no difference between them. Um, they, they talk about Vulcan and Diana, but they also talk about Zeus. Uh, those, those are different areas. They, they're blurring mm -hmm. mythology all over the place. I, it bugged me. I, it, <laughs> it, look, I, I think I, I admitted that my favorite Disney movie is Hercules, which is not... I don't have any ground to stand on with that being a belief. <laughs> because even it being called Hercules, it should have been Heracles, but I understand why, they wouldn't, why that name is not as, as easily pronounceable. But it was just... It was oddly frustrating to kind of have the fact that they didn't really pick a lane. They wanted to kind of play both sides. Um, I do think artistically speaking, I mean, the centaurs were gorgeous. Uh, again, mm -hmm. there are other things that we need to talk about here. Um, but the, the artistry was really beautiful. I, I found it hilarious when the, one of the cherubs butts, turned into a heart because uh, yeah. <laughs> you know we, like we said there there's the nudity and then they like actually are like oh yeah baby's butts that could be a heart why not <laughs> um i find the the pegasi really really interesting they they played with the um same thing they did with the mushrooms earlier that there's like one that just can't pick up the rhythms of the other I really liked the idea that like Pegasi like just become swans in the water. I thought that was a really cool move. I also found it really interesting again going to Hercules that uh Zeus looks very similar to the way they made Zeus in the 1997 Hercules movie. So they definitely had connections there. Um but so it, it's uh um, I'm going to jump in there real quick because I, I meant to send it to you before we started recording, but uh, I have a book just on Fantasia that I was able to pick up pretty cheaply. And it's all, it goes segment by segment. It has a bunch of concept art, including art for Zeus. And he looks even more like the 1997 uh, Hercules Zeus than he does in the final product. So they definitely went back to this concept art at the very least. 
for when they were starting to design Hercules. It, it has to be because there's no other explanation for it, really. That's really interesting. And I, I would love it if you uh, sent that my way. It definitely... So tiptoeing into the, the danger realm here, uh, I think even with the gods, you see that there are some very traditionally European-looking ones. Uh, Zeus is very, uh, you know, European and, and dignified in appearance. And then you have Vulcan, who basically just has, like, a loincloth on. And what to me looked like somewhere between caricatures of uh, Slavic peoples and caricatures of Middle Eastern peoples in, in kind of his facial expressions. Um, it definitely, that is, that is far from the worst thing they do in this section. Would you like to introduce the uh, serious parts of this section? Sure. And I, I do want to just add before we get there, the way they animate water in this segment especially is astounding. Like whenever those pegasi, pegasuses are <laughs> landing in the water and the there's like reflections and the rippling and all that kind of stuff, amazing. I also completely have the theory that whoever designed the original My Little Ponies definitely <laughs> grew up watching this uh, with the different color Pegasus throughout this. It definitely immediately called to mind uh, that for me in just in their design of being sort of like cutified, uh, you know, especially the the young, the, the juvenile uh, Pegasus, Pegasuses, Pegasi. <laughs> <laughs> Whichever whichever is actually correct. Uh, but yeah, we, we do need to talk about Sunflower the Centaurette. She was a... I mean, I would say, even by 1930s, 1940s standards, uh, an over-the-top caricature of, uh, of, of Black people. Uh, very much leaning into the stereotypes. Uh, I read in a number of sources that the conception of her came directly from Walt himself... Uh, and also made some suggestions that were even more stereotypical that did not make it into the original version of this. Um, she was removed uh, in for the 1969 theatrical re-release of Fantasia, which was sort of the first sort of restoration, you know, re-bringing this back out uh, as they as Disney discovered they could tap into the youth market with that release, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later. But um, you know, a little bit later on, uh, Roger Ebert commented on the removal of Sunflower. Um, and he said, you know, quote, while the original film should, of course, be preserved for historical purposes, there is no need for the general release version to perpetuate racist stereotypes in the film designed primarily for children. Whether or not you agree with the primarily for children part is up to you. But I agree with his overall statement there um, for, I will say, for research purposes and for historical preservation purposes you can find clips of sunflower and the original segment on youtube if you are curious as to what that looks like it is probably as bad as you imagine if not worse um and so it's i mean it's a neck it's obviously a good thing that they removed this character but it is really unfortunate that she was there in the first place i mean it's just an absolute it's 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 a shame yeah, there's there's a lot going on here. And one thing that I'll start off with uh, is there actually were two. 
there were two uh, black uh, centaurettes, uh, Sunflower and one that was known as Otika. And they were drawn so, so similarly in all of the caricatures that most people don't know that there were two because it was that... I mean, this was this was every every racial stereotype you could think of, and I I agree that it should not be uh, readily available. I I will say I was looking for what they would do with that. With this, uh, they begin the movie with a disclaimer uh, that they actually hold up for ten seconds. You can't skip it. Uh, which is interesting because they did cut the most overt racist parts here. Mm -hmm. um, I will say, I, I've read many, many comments on this, and I found that one of the best, I thought, was that they should have reanimated the scene. And rather than just panning around these, uh, these uh, horrible depictions, they should have added in essentially a beautiful version of Sunflower. Because, uh, frankly speaking, these centaurs come in all colors. And, and as I will mm -hmm. say, for, for all of the people who argue that, you know, people of color don't belong in fantasy, you know, if we can have a blue centaur, I see no reason why we can't have centaurs of other actual human races with realistic skin tones. Um, and I think that it would have been better if they had re-illustrated parts of that. Or even, you know, they can pan around it and then add in a scene that they newly animated so they don't have to completely redo it. But add in some gorgeous, uh, you know, black, maybe Middle Eastern, Hispanic uh, centaurettes to show just how, how stunning they can be. They do have other... Um, caricatures in there. So one of the uh, specific sections I noticed uh, around Bacchus, there's there's several things with Bacchus, um, but they have these very exoticized uh, centaurettes with zebra bodies that have caricatures or characteristics that to me read as either Middle Eastern or North African. Uh, with with the hairstyles and the way that their eyes and their mouths were depicted. Um, and they were in serving roles. And then they also had their uh, kind of little baby unicorns. And we have all of these very beautiful little baby unicorns running around. And then Bacchus is riding a donkey unicorn. And it just, it feels very intentional that there are i mean let's let's put it plainly this was created to have these beautiful very european figures being served by caricatures of other races and and as much as they they cut out sunflower and and they absolutely should have and i'm glad that they did that as early as they did I mean, the fact that it, it was ever in there, I, I don't think we can say it's a product of its time. This was overtly racist in its time and is something that needs to be fully, you know, confronted. Uh, another thing I'll say is, and maybe this is me drawing too much into it, obviously this is all very heteronormative and 
that hasn't changed in Disney e even up to this day. But if you watch the courtship of the centaurs, you see that they pair off by color. Every single one of them, it is slightly different shades, but, you know, the, the green centaurs with the green centaurs, they rarely even have different hair colors. It is very, uh, you shall not cross races, uh, in, in the way they did that. Um, you know, that even when they had the, the two lonely centaurs that, that couldn't find people, they, they were both blue, so that you know that they were meant for each other and, and for nobody else. And that was just very uncomfortable. There's there's definitely a, a segregationist lens in there as, as well as the caricatures. And so as much as I find that this was possibly one of the most beautiful, uh, beautifully drawn artistic areas, they had the, those gorgeous effects, like you said, on, on the water. I really loved when they had the rainbow and as the creatures are flying through it, they, they have great lighting effects. <laughs> I think that there are many aspects of this that just a 10 second, you know, disclaimer at the beginning that you forget by the hour long point that we're at. I just don't know that it's enough. And, and I, I think that it really needed to correct not just a race and that's something that we haven't really seen them do yet and that's something that i think definitely should be considered in the future i also just fully admit that i am not the person who should be talking about this that there are people who have much better perspectives than i do but i think that as much positive as we can say about this movie because there is a lot we can't have it without this very honest grim section that the pastoral segment as a whole is just horribly horribly racist stereotypical and i'm not sure that they even now have properly responded to that yeah i i would like to just second and underline everything that you've just been saying uh, i think you expressed it uh at least as least as well as i would have if not better uh on some of those points uh, and i and i absolutely agree you know disney obviously has a history of you know racist caricatures all around and they also have a history of doing their best to hide their dirty laundry at least at the most extreme examples and i do think that sunflower uh and I, i'm i'm sorry i blanked on the name of the other centaurette but um, Otika. Thank you. Um, they, I, I think it's very fair to say that they were widely probably considered racist at the time of re original release of this. And, you know, obviously one of our upcoming episodes is going to cover Song of the South. It's a topic that we are going to probably have to deep spend a lot, a lot more time talking about. Uh, if you do want to prep for that episode, I highly recommend uh, Karina Longworks, you must remember this. She did an entire season around Song of the South that is excellent and will be probably one of, at least one of my primary sources for that episode when we get there. Um, so if you want to do a little bit of extra homework for a movie that you may have difficulty tracking down to watch in the first place, I highly recommend uh, that podcast for listening. But I think it's also important to talk about it here. And I do think that Disney really has a 
I think Disney as a company struggles to know what to do with this stuff today. And I think all the suggestions that you and and obviously others that that we've been drawing on have made in terms of, you know, adding new characters or reanimating, adding some context around things. They're all potential solutions, but I, I don't know that Disney has embraced any of them to the extent that they should. And it feels very wishy-washy other than the attempts to hide the most extreme versions of this. You know, there are things that we'll be talking about all the way probably to much closer to the present than we would like to. Uh, you know, there's a particular segment in Peter Pan that I know that we'll be talking about this again. I, I think there's going to be, like I said, a lot of discussion in our Song of the South episode about that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure, Megan, you're also aware of the approach that Warner Brothers has taken with some of their more racist cartoons. Uh, and I think that episode is also where I want to talk about that approach and the pros and cons of of those things. A lot of those are are short, so they're a lot easier to sort of you know, contextualize and segment off because you're right. I think that having that mandated sort of sensitivity warning explanation at the beginning is a good start. But yes, an hour into the movie, it's easy to forget and be surprised or shocked or not under or that warning being vague enough to kind of cover all the bases, but not specific enough to tell you exactly what you're going to see or, you know, what, what, um, it feels like they don't want to point out specific examples of that and they want to leave it to your own conclusion about what is actually objectionable in this material. So uh, I think that's a very, a very important point that we do need to touch on. And it is a detriment to this overall, uh, the, the overall film. It's a, it's a detriment. It's something I have to keep in mind, you know, and again, it's, it's not that it doesn't bother me when I when I watch it, but for enough of it, like I understand the pros and cons enough to be like, okay, I can enjoy the parts of this that I enjoy and understand the parts of this that I don't enjoy because they make me uncomfortable. And put that in the context of the overall, you know, artistic achievement. I am glad that they removed the most objectionable things because at the very least it would pull me further out of the film than the stuff that is still in here that is objectionable. And I also did think about the color pairing of the centaurs. And that that's a really interesting one because, you know, there's, there's no way for us... I mean, I couldn't find anything about the intent of that. Like, I could imagine a cartoonist being like, oh, yes, like, we'll, we'll do them in different colors. And then when they pair up, it'll be just really satisfying that they've all paired off with, with their, their, their mate, so to speak. But... Obviously, especially given the context of the other depictions around that, it shades it in a different way when you're putting all those things together. And I think especially if this was the version with, you know, Sunflower and, and her companion included, it would even it would jump out even more um, than, than it does already. Yeah. And I it's funny because they they pair off. But earlier in that same segment we see the um, Pegasi and it is a pure white and a jet black Pegasi that are together that have children of all different colors, which is oddly wonderful. And you see that, but they're just animals. I mean, the Pegasi are not depicted in a very anthropomorphic light, Right. Whereas the, the centaurs and the centaurettes really are, are people. 
Um, and I just think, uh, I don't know, the, the biggest solution is that Disney needs to hire more people of color and talk to them and listen to them. And I don't think that that is something they have done to this day. And like you said, I think we're unfortunately going to see a lot more of this a lot later than we would like to. Yeah, and I I have a mental note because I, I came across something that, that confirmed at least that Disney at this point did not have any uh, black employees working in any sort of creative role at least. Uh, and I, I have a mental note to sort of track when that actually starts to change. Uh, and again, it's probably later than uh, I, I would like to see it, but that is the nature of, of this, unfortunately. I don't know that there's a great way to move forward from that. <laughs> However, uh, we are committed to going through the whole movie. I fully understand people who got to that section and just don't want to keep talking. But um, the, the section that does follow it is the Dance of the Hours by Amilcar Ponchielli, um, which was directed by T. He and uh, Norman Ferguson, who was one of Walt's uh, favorite animators. And it gets into this very uh, kind of interesting depiction of the original intent, with the original intent being that we have these different times of day that are kind of chasing each other out. And uh, Ryan, I know that you have some notes on how they decided to kind of change that up into the animals that they depicted it as. Yeah, so uh, this was one of those, and, and again, this is something that they've been doing this whole time, uh, but very specifically, they hired and, and brought in uh, live humans to inspire and give the animator something to track to and, and understand, because none of these guys, again, these were gag men, a lot of them came from, you know, working class backgrounds, they were not ballet experts, <laughs> uh, and so they had decided to take this ballet approach to Dance of the Hours. Uh, they brought in ballerinas and other ballet dancers to provide inspiration for the various characters. So the lead ostrich, who is apparently named uh, Mademoiselle Upanova, is based on Arena Baranova, who was a, a fairly well-known dancer at the time. Uh, Hyacinth Hippo, who is the prima ballerina, the sort of the lead hippo, was inspired by Marge Champion and Tatiana uh, Rybochinska is how I'm going to pronounce that and hope that the Russian pronunciation is as close as I'm going to get. Um, and the actress, uh, Hattie Knoll, who was a, um, who, who was on the heavier side, but she was a dancer. And so uh, she also helped provided some of the animation around the, the hippo dancers and sort of how they moved. Uh, I did read a story in which a lot of the male animators were, not talking of her in the best of light and sort of making fun of, of her size. And, you know, there's obviously there's like watching the segment again, I was really torn between some of the, uh, again, based on the stories that I read clearly sort of fat phobic approach to the material, but I don't actually know that some of that all the way makes it all the way through into the end product, because I do feel like, especially with, uh, Hyacinth Hippo and her partner, uh, Ben Alligator, um, uh, who uh, Robert Chinska's husband, David Lachine, was 
the inspiration for the lead alligator. And so I, I do think that actually sort of somehow gets mostly washed out of the final product because the hippos are, and the hippos especially, I feel like are not like, they're, they're, they're right in that sweet spot of looking very much like a hippo and not looking very much like a human being, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And I don't think that the, at least in my view, I didn't find that the movie was sort of gawking at the size of the hippos in relation to people of that size, but just as seeing a hippo do ballet is a kind of funny concept, but they are, they're all, they, the hippos are all also very good ballet dancers. There isn't the sort of like, haha, you know, fat person fall down and go boom humor in this short. A lot of the humor comes in the contrast of these different animals, like the one of the alligators with the elephant trying to get them through the columns feels more like a joke about the difference between an alligator and an elephant than it does between different sizes of people. At least in my view of how when I watched it this week to prepare for this, that's sort of how I took it as I was doing my best to take my, you know, sort of familiarity with these sequences, kind of putting those in the back of my mind and, and giving myself as fresh of a watch as I could. Uh, to me, a lot of that fun and humor comes in the leaning into the animal shapes more than it leans on imagining them as people. If that, I, I don't know if I'm making any sense <laughs> right now, Megan. I, yeah, I get what you're saying. Um, I do think that there definitely is, you know, an angle of fat phobia in there. I do think that they check that a little bit because as you said, the hippos are actually very good dancers. Uh, the biggest point where I think it, it becomes problematic is when she does a running leap towards the alligator and immediately flattens him, uh, which is of course supposed to be set up as, as very much like, haha, she can't do the lifts. Um, I, I think that other than that, it mostly avoids, uh, a lot of the issues. Um, I will say that, and I, I don't know that this is the best show in the world, but, uh, there's a show called The Big Leap that came out in 2021 that, uh, was a, a show about essentially a reality TV show based on ordinary people doing ballet. Um, I feel that they did a, a significantly better job of looking at how a larger dancer can still be a fantastic dancer and can still be lifted by an appropriately strong uh, uh, lead. I I hate the word lead, but I'm whatever. Um, uh, so I think that it, it's been done better. I am grateful it wasn't done worse. Uh, I do think that it really was, for the most part, a, a matter of animals dancing, um, except for one or two points. Um, but I, I do think it gets kind of interesting as they all flood together to see how distinctly different these different animals are from each other and how that's kind of uh, put forward through it. Because for the most part, we saw them in their own little segments that one time mm -hmm. of day took over from the other. And seeing them all together, I would have loved if they had just had like a brief moment where they're 
truly all dancing together, showing how great each of them is in the ensemble. But I, I feel like for the most part, it was it was just an interesting take, a very cartoon take of we have animals doing ballet and that's our way of introducing you to this uh, particular composition. Yeah, and, and I it's funny because I had that same thought about the lift as it was being set up, but then seeing how clear how clearly to me at least, and again, this is just my own take, how clearly the alligator is in love with that hippo and how triumphant he looks when he does manage to lift her. I was like, this is actually kind of sweet. And like he's very into her. He's very excited uh by her. And I was like at, at the very least, the characters are uh, seem to have a very positive and, you know, a relationship where they enjoy each other. And that's why, to me, I think a lot of the clear fat phobia that was in the mind of some of the artists really did kind of actually get washed out through the actual uh, material into the final product. Um, and, and to me, this feels maybe even more than Sorcerer's Apprentice in a way, this feels like a Silly Symphony segment to me. And it, this feels like you could release it on its own as its own standalone cartoon, and it would work just as well as it does as a part of this whole package. To me, this is the most, the Dance of the Hours is the most fun segment of Fantasia in terms of just pure, like a mix of humor and really interesting animation and fun characters. Like this, this really has, I think, the most original characters that you could see being brought back in other material compared to any of the other segments in here, which is maybe ironic because the central character of the next segment, which is uh, composed of both the Night on Bald Mountain by Masorxi, I have no idea how to pronounce that, I apologize, uh, and Ave Maria by Franz Schubert. These two pieces are combined to create one segment. It was directed by Wilford Jackson, who again is sort of has the reputation of being the perfectionist at Disney. He was the one you know, behind the old mill who really wanted to kind of push the art form and get everything exactly perfect. Chernobog is the central character I'm referring to. Uh, he was designed by Vladimir Bill uh, uh, Titla, is how I'm going to pronounce that, Titla. Uh, again, apologies to people who may or may not be still alive on the pronunciation of names. We are doing our best. Uh, but it's really hard and there are a lot of names and not a ton of sources that say them out loud. So this whole this whole segment sort of has this first movement, which is very sort of spooky and and, you know, the calling of these sort of demons and, and spirits here uh, and then transitions into this very beautiful, um, very the light to the dark uh, transition over the course of this piece, which closes out. Uh, Fantasia. So, Megan, I know you, you, you. I think you had more notes on this section than a lot of the others. So, I'll, I'll, I'll let you take the lead on on talking about the rest of this. So, I have one of the books out there on Disney villains. It's called uh, "Villains Delightfully Evil" by Jen Darcy. Um, and so, I really wanted to look into Chernabog, who is such an interesting figure. Um, and uh, so the actual character Chernabog, who is essentially being termed as the devil but isn't, uh, actually comes from various Slavic mythologies um, that just mean like the dark god or the, the black god. They definitely 
leaned into horror on this one. So I remember we went back to Snow White and discussed how uh, German expressionist horror films were kind of the inspiration here. We can definitely see that as a through line. So uh, as we said before, Disney animators would get live actors to perform the characters at several points. And so the director for this brought in Bella Lugosi, who is just one of like the top five names in horror. I mean, he is just, he defined horror at the time. And so they brought him in to act out the evil actions of Chernabog. And uh, the, the great thing is that uh, Bill Teitla uh, didn't like that. He, he decided that instead he, he just was going to make Wilfred Jackson take off his shirt and move around. And that was going to be Chernabog instead, uh, which I find hilarious. You have the best actor in horror and you're like, nah, I want that guy. I do, th I do think there's a little bit of Lugosi in the face because I, I didn't know this before reading your notes for this episode. And then I did come across it in my research as I was looking at some other sources. And so then going back to look at the design, I do think there is a little bit of, of Bela Lugosi in Turnabog's face. There's, there's, there's some Dracula in there. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, this definitely leans on horror. I find it really funny to go back to uh, those earliest silly symphonies where, oh, you know, dancing skeletons, they will be too scary for people. Meanwhile, here we have skeletal ghosts flying through gallows in this town. I mean, it very, it, it goes very dark. Um, we definitely get that sense that Disney then was not Disney now. Um, and so you get all of these really dark performances and, and Chernabog is, is just such a, a iconic figure that, you know, Fantasia is really defined by the hero of Sorcerer Mickey, which is funny because he was not really a hero in that, and, and the villain of Chernabog, despite not appearing until the last 15, 20 minutes. Um, and then, of course, once we have all of the darkness and, and essentially the, the celebration of evil, we get Ave Maria to come in. And that just led into so many amazing and wonderful parts um, because they really wanted to make it perfect. And there has been a lot of discussion of the fact that essentially that transition point really, really hit the audiences that you can fully see kind of light chasing out the dark. And the way they did that is, is really the first point here where we're gonna dive super deep into kind of the innovation angle so the, the kind of final shot of the sequence uh, ran for 217 feet of film, which was the longest shot in animation at the time. And the way they did it was they got a really, really, really long uh, kind of connected piece of, of glass planes <laughs> and just kept kind of bringing them through that, that multiplane camera. As John Culhane uh, detailed in the book Walt Disney's Fantasia, uh, the scene was filmed continuously for six full days and nights. They had to shoot it three times uh, 
and eventually gave up because it was too expensive and, and too crazy. The first time they accidentally used the wrong lens. Can you imagine? It, it's very much like the, oh, we left the lens cap on kind of uh, comedic moment. <laughs> they went to work on the second take and there was an earthquake, which is just absolutely uh, nuts that literally an earthquake was interrupting this. So they then had to start again. The third time proved to work. However, the finalized footage for this sequence arrived four hours before the premiere screening. I mean, this was just absolutely insane. It had to be done so perfectly. And they were, I, they just, I can just imagine an entire comedy series just on the like six days and nights of putting together this one little sequence. They're like, oh man, it's been so exhausting. They had nine technicians moving things through and presumably like two would sleep at a time so that they could get this done. And they're like, oh, it's wonderful. Uh, we had the wrong lens. Okay, boys, let's do it again. They're, they're halfway through. They're like, this is the best thing in the world. This is amazing. And then an earthquake happens of all things. And, and so a as much as, you know, it was uh, a good idea to kind of have that shift from dark to light. I, I just have to have so much respect for these people who, and we'll talk about this being a problem more later, these people who were not credited. I, I don't think there were any credits in this other than essentially Walt Disney and uh, Strakowski and the soundtrack. I don't think there were any credits until uh, it was on Disney Plus where they had translation credits, essentially. Um, but these people really... The, the definition of blood, sweat, and tears was, was really this last sequence there. Uh, I just want to note that there, there were no earthquakes when they were filming the animation for the evil sequence. <laughs> so, you know, read into that <laughs> what you will. Uh, but... Uh, I I really love this this final sequence. It's it's amazing. It it's because the uh, the version on Disney Plus and the version that I have on on Blu-ray is as close to the original uh, roadshow presentation that we'll talk about, which is a little over two hours. It, like even I'm who I've seen this a bunch of times. Like I'm almost like a little just exhausted by the time we get to this point, and so. Uh, because there's so much has come before, but this still, like, I mean, this makes sense as the final sequence to me because it really has that sort of gusto and huge epic scale in a way that even the creation of the world doesn't quite have. And, you know, we, we've talked a little bit here and there about segments of this being used in other Disney things, but that Night on Bald Mountain sequence is uh, part of, I believe it's part of the Disney Halloween treat, quote unquote, that they called it, where they would have that segment. There's like the, you know, Donald Duck, uh, Huey, Dewey, and Louie trick-or-treating short. Uh, the, you know, and a couple of other sort of spooky Disney segments that were all put together for television. Uh, and so, like, you know, Chernobog is kind of iconic because he's been used so much outside of this film as well, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But watching it this time, what really actually struck me, because I've spent a lot of time thinking about... Uh, John Williams music and specifically in the, in the Star Wars series and 
the way that he introduces new elements in sort of each of the trilogies that he's worked on. And I will not go any further because that would be an entire separate episode and this one is going to be long enough. So I will stop my own tangent just to say that I really noticed that Ave Maria is the only piece of music in this entire program that has voice as an instrument uh, or has any sort of vocals to it. And that also, I think, gives it a very, a very distinct feel when it starts. And you hear that human voice come in musically uh, you know, for the first time in this entire two-hour, the, the two-hour lead-up to this moment. And it really does, I, you know, I think even if you're not specifically paying attention to the music i think subconsciously it sort of punches through because it is different yeah i think it absolutely i mean the only other really uh vocal sound we were getting was the introductions here so bringing in the idea of you know vocal uh music and kind of the idea that it is what is chasing away the evil that the humanity and this piece that is is religious i i find it very funny that people thought that disney was trying to bring people to satanism because it's very much a religion triumphs over evil kind of moment um but it absolutely kind of brings in that weight and that sense of beauty that i think was part of this that they were trying and having to fight so hard to do um, you know, we, we've talked a few times that Disney was, was very used to the gags, uh, and Walt wanted this to be different. Uh, the, he actually fought many of his, uh, animators and actually would get into large outbursts. And one time he apologized, um, but it doesn't really come across as an apology and said, excuse me if I get a little riled up on this stuff. It's just a continual fight around this place to get away from slapping someone on the fanny or having someone swallow something. And as much as I feel like we definitely got elements of those gags throughout this, especially in, you know, the, the dance of hours and the, the baby butt heart in the pastoral symphony, uh, Night on Bald Mountain absolutely stands out as different and powerful in a way that stands out in a good way from the other things that Disney's, Disney is known for. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, you know, I, we'll, we'll transition into talking about the release, but, uh, and, and then we'll give, you know, at, at, in our last segment, we'll give our own own takes on this. But I, you know, I, I think it's clear that you can see Walt's passion for this project all, all the way through, including perhaps uh, other people not getting officially credited on the film itself. <laughs> so Megan, do you want to talk about the uh, initial release of Fantasia? Sure. Um, so going back to what we were talking about earlier, you've got to remember that as many iconic sequences as are in Fantasia, it all went back to Walt being annoyed that Mickey Mouse was not popular anymore. Fantasia was first released as a theatrical roadshow it went through 13 cities across the U.S., uh, beginning it at the Broadway Theater in New York City on November 13, 1940. Uh, again, the way they did this was specifically because they wanted to be able to bring uh, that kind of uh, studio sound uh, that they had created for this into 
the different theaters and that wasn't something they could do without really making it its own thing. Originally, Walt actually wanted, uh, you heard it here first, Walt Disney wanted to create a uh, scratch and sniff, essentially. He wanted to pump perfumes into the theaters <laughs> to match the mood of each scene. Uh, but eventually he was talked out of that because it was too expensive and impractical. But that did not mean that he didn't go all out. Fantasia's gala premiere uh, was held at the theater formerly known as The Colony, which was where 12 years ago to the day, Mickey Mouse had first made his debut in Steamboat Willie. Uh, they described it as, quote, the greatest thrill of Mickey's... Mm. They described it as, quote, the greatest thrill of Mickey's acting career, which is just kind of wild to think about. Uh, then Fantasia went on to run at the Broadway for 49 consecutive weeks, the longest run ever achieved by a film at the time, and then its run uh, continued for a total of 57 weeks until February 1942. As Megan mentioned, there's a total of 13 roadshows that were held across the United States, each involving two daily screenings with seat reservations booked in advance at higher prices and a 15-minute intermission. Uh, Disney hired a film salesman named Irving Ludwig to manage the first 11 engagements, and he had specific instructions regarding the setup outside the theater, the marquees, the curtains, the lighting cues. Uh, patrons were escorted to their seats by Disney-trained staff, and were given a program book that was illustrated by Gaio Fujikawa, uh, who uh, did a bunch of work for Disney that we may or may not talk about in, in the future. But you can sort of, again, see the sort of like, Disney touch that we associate with the theme parks uh, sort of, again, already built, being built into like the Disney brand. Proceeds from that original gala premiere went to the British War Relief Society, which was because the Battle of Britain and the, the bombing of England by Nazi Germany was happening at the time, just to place this in, you know, the, the broader historical context. Uh, and, you know, there was a huge demand for it, but I, you know, just because of the expense of making the film of putting together these roadshows with the special sound equipment and everything you know it 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 was liked by critics but it didn't really it wasn't the money maker that snow white was uh still for a number of reasons part of which was not being able to export this into other countries which actually would have been really easy because they would have just had to film new or dub over the introductions, but they wouldn't have actually had to make any changes to the animation or the music because there really isn't a lot of dialogue in the actual, or there's no dialogue in the actual uh, animate in the actual animated segments themselves. I think that sort of, again, this was another one where you, you sort of get the sense that for a while, if it wasn't a bigger success than Snow White, it was a failure. Yeah, and this, you know, as much as it I think there is a lot of talk about it, especially to this day. It was not terribly well-received by multiple critical populations. You know, film critics seem to really like it. Music critics thought that this was just uh, Stokowski doing his thing and that it was kind of demeaning to these high works of art. There were also increasingly politically minded uh, critics that just essentially were mad at Disney for not acknowledging what was going on in the world. 
I mean, this uh, this was going through the 40s or the early 40s, and it, you know, doesn't really talk about anything. It has a lot of, you know, music that is from the areas of the world that were, as we now see it, the wrong side of the war. Uh, so Dorothy Thompson with the Herald Tribune said that Fantasia was a, quote, caricature of the decline of the West. Nazism is the abuse of power, the perverted betrayal of the best instincts and the genius of a race turned into black magical destruction, and so is Fantasia. This was not universally beloved by any means, uh, particularly for those who felt that it was either supporting paganism or Satanism, thanks to the Greek and Roman mythology and kind of the, I'm not going to say the charm of Chernabog, but the iconicity, I suppose, of the character and multiple people who wanted essentially what other people were putting out during the war period, which was extremely uh, mean caricatures of Hitler and extremely racist caricatures of the Japanese and all of that, which some of that definitely exists. But uh, they wanted something political, and this was not very political outside of, as we've spoken about, the obviously the racist portions and then the portions on evolution. So there was, there was a lot of controversy here, and it didn't quite hit until much later. The legacy is really where Fantasia grows. Um, certainly one of the things that really worked well for it was the 60s. Uh, it's, it's considered to be the period where Fantasia did best because it was essentially marketed as the thing you watch after getting high on marijuana or mushrooms or whatever else you were getting into. Uh, the legacy is absolutely where the film made its money and where it made its name. Yeah, there's a really cool uh, psychedelic poster that I came across in my research that I will add to the, we'll make sure it's on our, our social media and stuff because it's it's really cool. It's very 60s, it's very 1969. Uh, and it really, you know, it. multiple sources that I read said it, it really was that the youth generation, quote unquote, again, talking from a 1940s perspective, it was the next generation after them coming up that really embraced Fantasia, um, you know, especially beyond the Sorcerer's Apprentice and really sort of ensured that it would be continued to be thought of in high regard where it, again, it really didn't, certainly didn't make the impact that Walt wanted it to on release. And, you know, I think disappointing multiple critics in multiple disciplines is also is is an impressive achievement in and of itself <laughs> yeah it it's definitely an achievement but but not in Walt's mind one of mm -hmm. the things that we didn't actually mention with the conception and with the production is that Walt had this idea that you would put out Fantasia every year and just put in new segments uh, he thought that it would really take off and they could just continue essentially making what amounted to silly symphonies to highbrow classical music and just segment them in and do that every year or every couple of years. And that didn't happen. Um, 
Looking back, according to the article, The Making of Fantasia, Disney's masterpiece uh, by the Houston Symphony, Disney looked back and said, oh, Fantasia, well, we made it. And I don't regret it, but if we had to do it again, I don't think we'd do it. Um, which is, is about as, as much as Disney could look back on one of his pet projects and be like, yeah, that didn't work. That didn't go the way we wanted it to. Um, that being said, like we said, the legacy really did work. Um, in 1998, the American Film Institute ranked it as the 58th greatest American film. It was the fifth greatest animated film. And then in 1990, it was selected for preservation in the U.S. National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. Uh, so it really uh, took on kind of a life of its own in those later years. So one of the places that we really see it kind of grow is, you know, in the 90s when it became more culturally significant, we see Roy E. Disney, who was the nephew of Walt, uh, co-produced Fantasia 2000, uh, which entered into production in 1990 and included seven new segments performed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra with conductor James Levine. Or Levine. Uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice is the only segment uh, that was kept from the original film, and that premiered at Carnegie Hall on December 17, 1999, before eventually making it into a wide release in regular theaters in 2000. Uh, so do you want to take it from here to talk about kind of how it boomed after the millennium? Sure. Yeah. And, and speaking especially in the, in the theme parks, Walt viewed it as not one of his, uh, not one of their hits. So it didn't really have a huge theme park present until the 2000s. So Disney's Hollywood Studios, formerly known as MGM Studios uh, in Disney World, they have the uh, a replica of Grauman's Chinese Theater. And then in front of that, they put a gigantic Mickey Sorcerer's hat that was there from 2001 to 2015, which was highly controversial within the parks community. There were a lot of people who did not like it. And then a lot of people who were, were upset when they took it down, which is par for the course with uh, Disney park changes. Also at Disney World is Fantasia Gardens, which has uh, two 18-hole two mini golf courses, both themed around Fantasia. One is sort of a more family-oriented one that has like the more elaborate obstacles and fun ball trick things and then one that is more intended for a more adult audience who wants a, a putting challenge with longer uh, holes but less less decorated but still themed around Fantasia. Uh, I had actually played on the family-friendly one when I was a kid with my parents because I was an odd kid and I was like I know we're in Disney World but I really like Fantasia and I also really like miniature golf and we needed to go do this um, and I, I remember it being fun. And then the fireworks show, um, or fireworks and water show, Fantasmic, which is at a couple of the different Disney parks, or has been over the years, includes scenes from The Sorcerer's Apprentice and other segments from Fantasia uh, projected onto water. Mickey is definitely dressed at, in his sorcerer's robes uh, and doing magic while also battling Disney villains. And then for the 20th anniversary of Disneyland Paris, Mickey had a special version made of his sorcerer's outfit uh, and the also in that park night, night on bald mountain is featured in their version of the storybook land canal boats the actually i think the most surprising thing that i came across 
in my research for this was how much of a presence Fantasia has had in video games, which I was not expecting. Uh, So in 1991, uh, there was a Fantasia game released for the Sega Genesis, where you played as Mickey Mouse and you must find missing musical notes scattered across worlds based on each of the segments in this film. I did watch a review of it on YouTube. I've never played this game before myself, did not know that it existed. But the review that I watched on YouTube said the game is pretty bad uh, in terms of 90s Disney's platformers. There are a lot, uh, there are better ones out there. It's an extremely difficult and often frustrating game. But the artwork looked pretty cool from what I saw of it. Um, it Fantasia or elements from Fantasia also feature in the Epic Mickey games that came out uh, in the uh, 2000s, early 2010s. Um, Fantasia has also played a role in many of the Kingdom Hearts franchise, and I will do my best to not talk ever too deeply about Kingdom Hearts because it has the most confusing mythology of any franchise I've ever come across in any medium in my entire life. (laughs) And then there was a music game for the Xbox, um, themed around Fantasia, uh, back when the Kinect and the like motion, like hands-free or controller-free motion controls and music games were like the thing. They did a game named after Fantasia, but included all different kinds of music, everything from classical stuff to like Queen, uh, where you would like conduct and interact with the music in sort of an abstract way with your hands. So you would like move your hand across the screen in time to the music and different effects or whatever would happen. Um, so I was really surprised that Fantasia of all movies because it's so non-story driven and I feel like most games are very, especially games adapted from other material are very much about following a story. It was it was interesting to see how many times Fantasia has come into the video game world that I just had no idea. Yeah, I think that it really comes down to there were two main characters in this and they kind of right. show up everywhere. And then the rest of it, most people kind of forget. Um, so like you said, Sorcerer Mickey shows up all over the place. Um, Even in, speaking of extremely over-convoluted, complicated uh, Disney lore, uh, the show Once Upon a Time, by the point that it had gone completely off the rails, uh, they brought in the Sorcerer and the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Uh, Plot twist, it ended up just being about Merlin for the most part. But there was a moment where we were all wondering if Mickey Mouse was about to enter into this, like, somewhat realistic world. Like, they did have, like, Gus from Cinderella turn into a dude in the show, so we thought Mickey might have been coming. So Mickey definitely, uh, with his Sorcerer Apprentice garb, continued on. The other major figure that carried on was Chernabog, who was also in Once Upon a Time briefly. Also in the parks, everywhere. Uh, Chernabog, I'm not going to list all of the rides and celebrations, but I will say Chernabog was in the Disneyland Resort at Walt Disney World, at the Tokyo Disney Resort, at Disneyland Paris, and at Hong Kong Disneyland. Uh, Chernabog also ended up making a cameo appearance in the 2010 live-action film The Sorcerer's Apprentice, where he was a gargoyle in the background. So I think it absolutely comes down to Walt loved his characters and as many non-narrative elements as we had here, we had two characters that really, really stood out and they 
just really popped up everywhere throughout kind of the legacy of the company. Yeah, and I think that's a great I think that's a great way to sort of end that piece of its legacy. And it does seem like in the parks, if if they're putting together a show and they're going for like we need a we need a big bad, it's either Maleficent as a dragon or it's Chernabog. And I for once support both of these. I think that is a great use of these characters. I think it's very fun. Uh, and I think they're both really good designs. So I'm glad that I'm I'm glad that Chernabog sort of you know, rises out of Fantasia as much as I love it and does sort of get his his own spotlight here and there for things. And I'm sure there are people who have seen him in the parks and have no idea that he's <laughs> from Fantasia. Yeah, I I saw the uh, Night on Bald Mountain sequence in a music appreciation class just to talk about that composition and how it was depicted. And I have seen Chernabog a lot. As I've said before, I love villains. I am always here for the villains. And Chernabog is an iconic Disney villain, despite not coming from a particularly iconic Disney narrative. Uh, For the most part, when we talk about Disney villains, we are talking about the counterparts to a Disney princess, or at least the counterparts to a Disney hero like Aladdin or Hercules. And the fact that Chernabog, who doesn't exactly have an enemy other than, I guess, God, uh, the Christian God, uh, definitely uh, stands out as as a major Disney villain. Yeah, so so moving on to our, our final segment on this, uh, actually, episode not as long as I thought we were going to go, but we'll see. Um, you know, moving into to our takes and, and, and closing thoughts here, like I, I think I said several hours ago <laughs> this is this is one of my favorite movies uh we did an exercise this past fall on movie john uh where i do most of my writing where we did our own version of the uh, sight and sound poll and we asked our staff like what your basically like what your all-time top 10 is and tried to focus more on our individual list than trying to be like well i'm going to put citizen kane on there because that should be on <laughs> on the list and really you know, asking people to, to you know, what, what, like, what's your 10 movies that sort of represent you and your taste in movies? And uh, on in my 10 was Fantasia, because I really do, as much as I have grown up loving Disney and, and uh, loving the characters and everything, I do feel like that this is very something very special within the larger world of animation in general. And I also love music. There's a lot of classical music I enjoy, even though I don't consider myself an expert. And so the combination of the beauty in the artistic and technical achievements, as well as the celebration of music, even, you know, not overlooking uh, the flaws that we've talked about and listed out, but understanding that they are they are part of this. Overall, there is something magical about Fantasia that I don't find in any other movie I've ever seen. And so there really is to me, it just there's something special here and which makes some of those objectionable things even more unfortunate to me. But overall, as a package, kind of separating that out in my mind, there is something that just speaks to who I am as a person. And I just really, you know, I've watched it at least once during the pandemic. uh, And then I watched it again this week. And every time I go back to it, I'm just, again, blown away because I think because of that non-narrative nature, there's always something that I've forgotten in here or something that I feel like I'm seeing for the first time or appreciating for the first time every time that I watch it. Uh, And, you know, for me, 
uh, you know, um, we're going to go through our, our favorite and least favorite segments. So I'll sort of transition in and then uh, Megan, you can give your your overall thoughts and list your favorite segment. On this watch, it was actually The Sorcerer's Apprentice for me. There was just something really, really cool about just seeing Mickey in that element and in this story. But, you know, I talked about the entrance of the wizard at the end and the way the lighting is used and the painterly backgrounds mixed with this very classic kind of Mickey style and the the mix of, of humor and a little bit of like horror and, and thriller and the magic and the different uh, artistic elements and the way that it all comes together, it really, it, it really stood out to me this time. But, you know, I, I appreciate all of these segments. I really like all of these segments. It, you know, it, I think it would be hard to call like the Takata and Fugue segment my favorite, but because it is so abstract, but I really do like that segment. And it, it's, I really enjoy that segment and there's, there is something special about it. And I think, you know, when we all get all the way through uh, some of the other films that we're going to be talking about in the next few weeks where there is more musical experimentation in some of the package films that are comprised of different shorts kind of put together. Uh, we'll see some of that Fantasia continue in there as well. And even up to things like Soul uh, that Pixar did a couple years ago, there's some stuff in there about music that is just really special and cool. Or even, you know, the way that Rat Ratatouille depicts taste and food, like there is this sort of love of other art forms that's coming through in some of these animated movies. And I think because I love music so much and because of the so much imagination is in here. And I think that's I think that's ultimately, I think, the thing that I truly love about Fantasia. Yeah, I think that there's a lot. There's so much to like about it. I, I know that we definitely had to discuss the the darker sides of it and that is part of it but there's just so many interesting things i this is gonna sound weird my favorite segment really was just the weird combo live action animation parts that weren't technically segments i really <laughs> loved when mickey was talking to uh god what's his name uh, stakowski okay <laughs> I, re I really liked when Mickey was talking to uh, Stakowski. I really liked when they were, you know, coaxing out the uh, soundtrack to, to do its, you know, make a sound. Okay, not that sound. Um, I, I found that kind of interplay between them really fascinating because I think that this was in so many ways about, you know, connecting with music in ways you hadn't before and those tiny little segments for me really kind of brought that out all the way um i you know i had never seen this before it's not necessarily one of my favorites but i i really do appreciate the legacy and that goes from you know the nutcracker being a fundamental part of our society to you know, the Sorcerer's Apprentice. I mean, I, like I said, when I watched Once Upon a Time, we all thought Mickey was going to appear and he didn't, but the hat did. And it had an interesting plot twist. And, you know, I, you were bringing up all of the ways that kind of music has continued to be represented in the animated films. So I'm going to bring us to Marvel again, since you made the brilliant connection to <laughs> Doctor Strange earlier. 
I have such conflicting thoughts about Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness uh, because I, I love Wanda Maximoff and as much as I was in absolutely here for her in the like I, I uh, support women's rights and women's wrongs kind of vibe I don't love her villain arc being so abrupt but the scene in that movie where Strange and Dark Strange fight with music notes is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And I do feel like it it ties into, you know, I, I understand that Disney eating up every intellectual property out there is, is not a good thing. But I, I do wonder if Disney had an impact on that scene being created and done in the way it was because of this great tie-in to the importance of music and how it shows up in Fantasia. So that's definitely um, something that I, I think is, is great from this, that there is a, a very clear legacy that we can see moving forward. Um, going to kind of the, the, our last uh, questions, uh, I'm gonna try and do this a little bit rapid fire. Uh, what was your least favorite segment? Yeah, I mean, and and it really is for me, you know, a least among favorites kind of thing. It it probably is like really thinking about it. The I would say the Rite of Spring and the Pastoral Symphony are probably the the bottom two for me, but it it really is the least among favorites. The Rite of Spring, I don't entirely disagree with with your view, especially considering as part of the the whole. Like I think on its own, it stands up fine, but it does feel not quite as having all the other elements together the way that the other things do in terms of, like I said, that imagination, that inventiveness. And then the Pastoral Symphony, I think mostly in part because of the pieces that do make me uncomfortable about it. Uh, But again, as we discussed extensively, there is also a lot to celebrate uh, about that in terms of its artistry. So it, it really is a least among favorites, not a I hate the segment kind of feeling. Yeah, I just threw in what that. I just threw in that section because I wanted to make you uh, answer an uncomfortable <laughs> question <laughs> because I That's know totally it's your fair. favorite. Uh, I, same things. Uh, I think the same two segments for more or less the same reasons. I obviously there is all of the problems with the pastoral symphony, as well as just the fact that it seems very confused about mythology. <laughs> which seems like an odd take if you're going to do a segment on mythology. Um, but I just, I can't, I can't watch The Rite of Spring and The Night on Bald Mountain and call that the same thing. The, the difference in fire between the horrific things Chernobog is able to, to conjure and then just like, oh look, it's an orangey yellow circle. I, and I, uh, that's so mean to the animators. I, I don't mean to be mean, <laughs> but I just feel like they went, okay, the reason we are making this project is because we spent way too much on this one segment. So we need cheap stuff. And then they worked on the night on Bald Mountain and they went, okay, that, that didn't end up being cheap. We, we put too much into this. And, and I feel like some of the other segments maybe are, are a little less than because they were trying to cut costs at that point. Again, like you said, I don't know that it would be bad on its own, but putting the two together does make it uh, 
somewhat difficult to kind of connect with. So my, my last question isn't really for me because I have never seen this before, but uh, for you, was there anything that stood out or surprised you in this viewing that you hadn't seen before or hadn't really connected with? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, one, that's a really good question. Uh, I, I do think that what really stood out for me is is the whole of it and really seeing how the segments lead into each other. And, you know, I spent a lot of time really thinking about trying to think about it as both a whole and as individual parts this time. And so I think for me, the stuff that jumped out were, again, like little moments here and there that I don't always remember, you know, whenever I go back to it. This is this is the first time I've ever gone and watched like, you know, the shorts that we talked about in our first episode, Snow White, Pinocchio, Fantasia, in order in relatively close proximity. And so I think for me, what stood out really was that that how each of these has felt like a leap forward, not just a step forward. And based on my, it's been many years since I watched Dumbo because it is not one of my favorites. Uh, but I'm very curious to see how I feel about Dumbo coming after uh, Fantasia because I, it, it's a different art style. It's a different approach. Uh, and so I think that's what I'm really, I'm really curious about because in my mind right now, this is sort of, the apex of this era of Disney in terms of that artistic expression. And, you know, they're not, they're certainly not spending five hours on individual cells in going forward because they can't, because with the war and other things that we're going to talk about in our next episode, there's a bunch of other factors that come into play about cost. And this is sort of, you know, maybe Walt's last like blue sky blank check, uh, project. And so I think I think that actually really stood out for me as watching them in succession the way the way that we've been going through has been really interesting and really satisfying even with just the th- stuff we've done so far. Yeah, I think that you know, as much as this maybe wasn't my favorite, you definitely can see that that growth of the studio. I'm all I'm saying is I am going to be comparing those elephants from the Dance of the Hours to Dumbo and the other elephants there a lot. I want to see, are are they just copying it? Is it completely different? Uh, I haven't seen Dumbo since I was a kid. I have seen some segments. I do know we're going to have a wonderful discussion about race in Disney again. Uh, so yep. that's uh, that's definitely something for our listeners to look forward to. Uh, That being said, our next time on Dream With Mind and Heart, we're going to be visiting Disney Studios, meet a reluctant dragon, and talk uh, a good bit about a strike and how it impacted Disney and Disney's projects moving forward. In the meantime, you can email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, DreamMindHeart, and on Instagram at DreamWithMindAndHeart. We'll see you next time. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you so much to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork and Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song.